This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode. We recently did a redesign on the website, so go check that out. You can also go subscribe to our Roundup newsletter, which is going to put a little recap of a lot of the content that we do throughout the week, in addition to some just other basic uh, tech news that we kind of find across the industry. We kind of put our own little commentary on it. Uh, so go check that out. Subscribe. I uh, would very much love to put that in your inbox every week. This week, we sat down with our buddy, Charles Dauber with Warm Commerce. Uh, came by and chatted with us about wearing boots in Silicon Valley uh, for the greater part of a decade, taking multiple companies public, and now he's looking to disrupt and innovate across the supply chain uh, in oil and gas. He's done a lot of really cool stuff and really excited for him. Uh, so we hope you guys enjoy this episode. But really quickly, before we get to the episode, this episode is brought to you by our good buddies over at Well Database. We had their CEO, John Farrell, on the show quite a while back and recently had them show off a full demo of Well Database on the bullpen. If this is your first time hearing about them, Well Database is our go-to provider for all things oil and gas data. We've used them for at least the last year and couldn't be happier. They have production data, completions data, frack data, permitting, logs, and a whole lot more. Then on top of that, you're able to answer just about any question you have about the data with your analytics that's layered on top. Most of you know how expensive data providers can be, uh, and you can easily spend a couple hundred grand a year. In this downturn, you need to save every penny that you can, and Well Database plans range from free for well-level data to $1,000 per month per user for the professional package, and that gets you their all-new decline analysis tool built in, which they're very excited about. Go check them out at welldatabase.com and tell them we sent you. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. What was up with that intro? That's I don't know like, why I just said it like that. That's kind of like robotic. <laughs> like, hey, everyone, welcome to the oil and welcome gas. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. I guess we're just having fun today. Uh, we're here with our good buddy, Charles Dauber. What's going on, man? Howdy. CEO of Warm Commerce. Warm like the temperature. Warm like the temperature. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Happy so to be here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for fighting COVID and, and uh, joining us here today. I appreciate it. Glad and y'all are still here. So you got to be like to get on the podcast nowadays. You have to be a warrior. You have to be a warrior. The... You got to go through the streets of, <laughs> of Houston battling COVID left and right. Yeah, I saw a bad storm rolling into that's supposed to flood. So just add that extra, <laughs> extra layer. Dude, no kidding. So yesterday I was leaving. Uh, no, it was when I was leaving the gym. I was leaving the gym the other day in Katie and I was going up 99 and I was in my car and I was scared shitless because I saw all these cars pulled over to the side of the road. I'm talking like 20 cars in a row pulled over and I'm like, Oh God, should I be worried? And I started driving through there and it was just like, I'm, I'm talking just shooting water over no, the cars. I was I'm driving through. It was raining so hard. It just sounded like it was pounding through the roof. I was like, man, that's the last thing that we need right now is just flooding. Flooding on top. We, you, we talked you, about this. All you need is, all you need is three inches of rain here in Houston nowadays to get flooding. Mm. And then, you know, 610 and I-10 are underwater. Right when COVID kicked off, I was like, imagine we're all at home, we're quarantined, businesses are closed, and then all of a sudden a flood hits. And then half the people who are working at home are now flooded <laughs> in their home because Mayor Turner didn't want to do anything about the last floods. Well, we'll hope for the best. So anyways, Charles, appreciate you being here with Long us, man, throughout all the circumstances. So tell us a little bit about warm commerce and what you guys are doing, and then we'll just dive into it from there. Sure. So first... Long time listener, happy to be here. Uh, love love it. So y'all are y'all are doing great. Thanks, man. Um, so look, my background is in a combination of technology and oil and gas. 
So 15 years in high tech, 10 years in Silicon Valley. Then I moved back to Houston, where I'm originally from, about 10 years ago to take this company public. So I was running a industrial equipment manufacturing company, NASDAQ listed. We were selling to oil and gas companies, and we sold that in 2018. And when I had been running that company, we had a bunch of issues in terms of our supply chain that we were had all these important projects. We were working with all these large oil and gas companies and power gen companies. And about once a month, my chief operating officer would come to me and say, hey, Charles, sorry, we're going to miss the quarter because we have some part that's from some supplier that's late and we don't have any backups or we go scramble and figure that out next month. Hey, Charles, sorry, we have some quality issue with some other big company and we can't we can't make the quarter. We'd scramble and go figure it out. And so we were a mid-market company and it bothered me that there's all these consumer technologies that help consumers get better visibility into who are good people to work with. If it's Angie's List or good restaurants to go work with like mm -hmm. Yelp or things like that, but there didn't exist anything like that in the industrial world and certainly not in the oil and gas market. And so that was really the genesis of warm commerce. I got so, a question for you real quick. So you're out in Silicon Valley. You were there for 10 years, you say? 10 years. So you show up today wearing cowboy boots. Did you wear cowboy boots in Silicon I did, Valley? Actually, Man, I love it. I did. I did. They didn't really know what to think about me. Certainly Friday afternoons were casual day. Engineers like to wear Hawaiian shirts. It's not a good look for most engineers. Uh, and so, yeah, I did actually wear boots and jeans. Uh, I love so it, man. For representing. That was, a, that was yeah. my thing. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yes. So what's it, you know, first, uh, that's really interesting, you know, coming from Silicon Valley and having that tech experience and then coming back into oil and gas, you know, let's talk about just general differences between the two worlds. I mean, they are different worlds, right? And then um, kind of talk about how you see oil and gas technology through the Silicon Valley lens. Sure, sure. Um, lots of things to talk about there. So just sure. a couple, <laughs> couple off the top of my head. So, so look, in Silicon Valley, 90% um, of the people you're going to talk to are in startups. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very normal mindset. In Texas, that's very unusual. And so the risk profile for people is generally much more conservative in Texas as in the, these industries that mm -hmm. we focus on, right? Um, so the risk and adoption is greater. The pace of adoption and the pace of uh, innovation is much faster. Um, and I was pretty darn surprised when I got down here how behind so many of these oil and gas companies were on the deployment of technology. So I had deployed Salesforce at three different companies before I came down here. And most people in Texas, this is 10 years ago, didn't even know what CRM was, mm -hmm. right? And so there's it's this- still, It's still pretty common in oil and gas. <laughs> it's still pretty common in oil and gas. That's exactly right. And so, so what you find is in some of these industries, they're just, they're five, 10 years behind. And that's, that's a big deal, right? Especially if you think about what the oil and gas market goes through today with this low oil price environment and the need to get your costs down, the need to get better visibility. There's tools out there that, that, that people can use to help their businesses, but there's an awful lot of conservativeness in terms of adoption rates for the oil and gas market mm -hmm. versus many other sectors that are out there. Yeah. So. How did you end up in Silicon Valley again? I had always wanted to do the tech thing. And if you're doing tech, Silicon Valley is where the action is. And so actually what happened is I went to UT in Austin. Okay. Always wanted to live in Asia. Got a chance to move to Asia. Where uh, at? Uh, I moved to Singapore. Uh, oh, I was awesome. my company's business in Asia. Spending time in Japan and China and Korea and India and all sorts of places. Then moved to Silicon Valley with that company that I'd been in. Mm. Left there to go join a startup, help take them public. 
started another company that was a predecessor to YouTube. So whoa, 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 let's slow down. There's a lot of really great nuggets. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. What was just blazing so, through the time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got time here. What, what, what was the company? What was the company that took you to Silicon Valley? It's called Teradyne. It's a, a okay. semiconductor. It's in the semiconductor industry. Okay. I think you told me about that. I may have mentioned it to you. So they, I was okay. running their business in Texas and then Mexico and then in Asia Pacific and then moved uh, with them to Silicon Valley. So, so you were literally there in the Silicon part of the Valley. I was in Palo Alto <laughs> in Silicon Valley and that's sort of the mid, the middle part doing Silicon stuff. Exactly. So, then, so then what was the next startup that you left to you do? So I left Teradyne and joined a company called Copper Mountain Networks. Uh, that was a startup that was trying to do high-speed internet, and I helped mm. take them public. Um, they were doing DSL equipment, and so there were six or seven startups that were all competing, and we were the one that actually got out, executed well, took the company public, and uh, oh, wow. and, and did well. Yeah. That's awesome. And then so it's crazy gonna... to think about, you know, kind of back to those days of where there was a race for DSL, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> trying to save us. I mean, I remember, you know, like early, I don't know, let's say 2000 timeframe running off of dial up internet. And <laughs> that's when MySpace <laughs> came that's out. When, that's when it was. That's when it was. <laughs> remember that's they were exactly bringing done. DSL to our neighborhood. I was like, fuck yes. Mom, get, get off the phone. I can't <laughs> use the internet. <laughs> I remember well, that, those days. That actually was the impetus of starting my first company, which is I had, we had our first kid when we were in California. My family was back in Houston and I had been working with these companies to deploy high-speed internet. And there had been a bunch of photo sharing sites that started coming out, like uh, for Snapfish and whatnot. Yeah, and like and Photo like, Bucket and photo those bucket. types. Yeah. I'm like, hey, I can I do a startup to go do uh, sharing video over the internet. So I quit that company, raised a million bucks, launched this product. What year was this? 1999. Wow. Oh, so you were right there with Broadcast.com. I was so with Broadcast.com. They were on the radio side, you know, the sort of the, the audio. Yeah. And uh, we were trying to do video over the internet. We got caught in the dot-com crash and shut the thing down. But two or three years later, people started saying, hey, have you heard of this new company, YouTube? I'm like, no, I don't know. What is it? Oh, it's a copy of Clip Show. Okay, fine. <laughs> let's go check it out. Sure enough. So you can be too early is one of the startup messages you learned in Silicon Valley. You absolutely can be too early. I was just having lunch with a guy and we were talking about that. Just timing is everything. Sometimes you can yeah. be way too early to an idea. Um, you know, that that's... I want to kind of dive into you being, you know, you said that you guys had a shutdown shop during the dot-com bubble. And I think that you're the only guest that's ever been on our show that probably experienced the dot-com bubble firsthand. From Especially as an entrepreneur. Yeah, from mm. an operator standpoint. So I'd love to dive into that a little bit because I'm sure we can learn. Well, well think about it because we're kind of going through our own little crash of just the economy and the world. It seems everything's burning down around us. And it's super, super depressing having tons of friends that are having to shut down their businesses or they're losing their jobs. And I think a lot of people are kind of looking for answers. And I feel like a lot of the, I don't want to call you an old head because you're, <laughs> you're not that old, but a lot of these older guys, they're, they're not necessarily out there talking about it. They're not making content around this. And, you know, they'll, they'll say it in, you know, over lunch and dinner and in private situations. Well, even it's one thing to experience the dot-com bubble is like a public equity investor. Yeah. But to experience it as an actual operator and so yeah our company got caught up in it i mean there's a vast amount of you know wisdom and experience that comes from that yep. so love to dive into that a little bit and here you know here's kind of the, the war stories if you will sure and, 
Um, also tie it back into today because, you know, a lot of people believe that we're going through another bubble in, in the private sector, which I tend to agree. You know, you see, it always seems that SoftBank's at the root of all these companies that are <laughs> having problems, but I, I think SoftBank has been a major contributor to the issue. But, um, you know, a lot of people are, are saying that, oh, we're going through tech bubble 2.0 with all these companies getting, you know, billions and billions of dollars of valuation and then hitting the public market via IPO and and then just crashing. I think, um, man, I can't remember which company I saw it was yesterday, but they've raised uh, somewhere around $350 million in venture capital, and their market cap is $360 million right now <laughs> in the public market. So it's just absolutely atrocious what's happening. Do you think that we're going through, does it feel the same as the dot-com bubble in, in the private startup market, or was it a lot more hype back then? Maybe we should preface with how would you describe the dot-com bubble for those who have never even mentioned it? And then let's get into the question. Sure. So the dot-com bubble was basically the concept that people were starting to sell stuff on the internet. And with Amazon, that sounds laughable right now, but 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the concept of buying and selling things on the internet wasn't there. And so people were creating startups to go sell cat food on the internet and toothbrushes on the internet and whatever you could think of on the internet. Well, it's so funny because I lived in Seattle. Okay. Um, 1998 to like 2002. And I'd always drive by Amazon's headquarters and it was just- What's book, up, Jeff? It's online, What's up, by? It's the online bookstore. It's a bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was just like a library when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> That's so, actually funny. Yeah. So, so, so it's been so long since I read anything about the actual, the, the, dot-com bubble was it just everything was overvalued and everything just came crashing down and capital just dried up it i don't know if i would necessarily consider it overvalued so as we were looking at shutting down uh, a clip show right because we couldn't because when we got caught in the dot-com crash really what happened is nobody was making any more investments in anything and you either had cash or you didn't and we didn't yeah. have cash right um, but you know we were offered to get acquired by i think it was snapfish at the time and they're like we value at X and our valuation is $300 million. And we're like, we're going to have 1% of the company. That's not very interesting. Let's just go do something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so my, my, my experience as an operator in that time actually came from the company that I went to next, which was a public company. It had, uh, it was called cash flow. It made equipment to make the internet go faster. And they mm -hmm. sold it to people that, that worked with these, these dot coms. Well, if there are no dot coms and there's no money and nobody needs to make the internet go faster, this company's stock had gone from 200 down to eight when I joined on its way to 50 cents. And so talk about destruction of value. Mm -hmm. And luckily I had been in a position, I was, I came on as VP of marketing and then turned around this company and figured out that we could reposition the technology for one really small part of their user base, which was the enterprise. And I turned it into a network security play. We renamed the company, relaunched it, and the revenue went straight back up the other side over four years. That's awesome. Um, and then that company ended up getting sold to Semantic for $4 billion some number wow. of years later. You brought up a really interesting point about the valuation of companies and, you know, it's like, okay, what's, what's your interpretation of overvalued? Because Amazon barely made it out alive from the dot-com bubble, right? Yep. And now looking back in hindsight, was Amazon overvalued? Because look at them now. I don't think so. Right. I think they were pretty you know, undervalued right. if, if you're willing to take a bet on them. That's right. But a lot of people viewed them differently during that time period. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. That's you, right. You know, you can look back very easily, but looking forward, it, you know, 
there's probably some companies i mean your company was an example of it yeah it's like you know someone probably thought that you guys were overvalued and you could have you know turned into a a, a youtube or right. a, a vimeo you right. know type service exactly. so yeah it's really interesting way to think about it i've never kind of framed it that way so the the and as we think about this market environment, there's clearly different things at play. This this environment we're in is not, we're not here because of overvalued startups. We're here for a whole variety of reasons that would take up the entire podcast plus, plus <laughs> right? But it doesn't yeah. matter, we're still here, right? And so what do companies do about it? How do they make sure that they're focusing on the right problems and that people are willing to give them money and things like that? That's our job as CEOs is to go figure that out and yep. make sure that we're, we're doing things that regardless of the market environment or the price of a barrel of oil we're still getting through and we're still we're still having a successful company and that's our job so you guys sold to semantic what year was that so i left that company um i don't even know the years they're falling they're, they're all they're yeah all i'll just kind of put together, together. <laughs> i joined i was recruited by a, a vc backed startup to go run their hybrid us india company this was 30 people in mountain view and 150 in wow. pune india I did that for a year and a half and then was recruited by the board of this company in Houston to come back to Houston and take this company public. And that's the one I ran for 10 years and we sold in 2018. Was it difficult or maybe not difficult? It's not the right word. Maybe different going from, I mean, was 10 years is probably the longest time you'd been in a company, right? 10 years is a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a long time. That's quite yeah. a you bit don't get of that time. many 10 year blocks in your <laughs> yeah, career. You've only got so many right. 10 year segments. <laughs> And that was a that was an oilfield service company. Uh, it was an oilfield equipment company. So the company okay. used to be known as M and I Electric. Okay. So when I joined, we were this was three oil downturns ago. We were primarily focused on upstream. We were doing power and control systems for like drilling rigs and services. Mm. And after the twenty, I get my downturns confused. Let's call it yeah. the twenty twelve downturn. I pushed that company into midstream and downstream and power gen and to diversify and that ended up being the thing that saved this company. So that port brought you over to help that company. Did you have any oil experience or or interaction before this that? This was a company that my father had been involved with and I've okay. been on the board 10, 15 years ago. So Got it's not you. necessarily a family business, yeah. but we had been involved, so I knew some of the people. And since I'd had public company experience and they were looking to go take this company public, I was looking to come back to Texas to be closer to family. Do you enjoy taking there. companies public? Because that sounds like a, a hellish thing to to take companies public. What's your what's your take and experience on that? Um, I see I see you kind of like rolling there's your eyes a little There's lots of mixed I'm, I'm gonna ask you like, I'm gonna ask you some really loaded questions today. So so Look, every company has issues. Every company has at different stages has different challenges, right? And so one of the nice things about being CEO of a public company is you have instant credibility with customers. They can check your financials. There's no risk, all that sort of stuff. And so what you do is, you know, leveraging that to go ramp sales and recruit people and all the raise capital when you need to, all that stuff is really much more straightforward. That obviously the downside is, is a chunk of my time was dealt with boards and governance committees and Sarbanes-Oxley and shareholder meetings and investor relations and all those stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's not horrible. If anybody, any CEOs are like, oh, I run a public company. This is horrible. Come on, man. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> this is fine. You're having fun, right? So yeah, you do it again. And it's fine. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think about public companies and executive, you know, management teams that run public companies. I'm like, man, that's got to be a drag at times. But the, the important part is you have to have a solid communication and relationship with all your key stakeholders, including the investors. Yeah. Right. And so we 
we are, we're a very straight arrow company, no funny business, none of that, none of that stuff. And so we had good relationships with all of our investors and there's nothing, all that stuff was really positive. So, so let's dive into warm commerce a little bit. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you told us kind of the problem that you identified. Yeah. Let's talk about how you identified that problem. Um, I'm sure you saw it happening, you know, firsthand and yeah, let, let's just kind of talk about, you sure. know, what stage you guys are in and dive into the company a little bit. Yep. So, I mean, the background again was when I ran this company, we had significant supply chain problems. This was all about lack of data. And we had a mid-market software package that basically should have told us this information. It's a procurement system. It doesn't. It doesn't have any real concept of who are your suppliers? How are they performing? Are there any other suppliers out there in the marketplace that you could use to replace them? Our team mm -hmm. never had any time to go manage the suppliers because they were always running around crazy busy. We didn't know if our suppliers were had good financial health. We didn't know if they were sourcing from China and they had bad quality. We didn't know any of that stuff. And so so what warm commerce is, is, is what you'd call a SaaS-enabled marketplace or a SaaS-enabled network. So we sell software to an oil and gas and industrial companies that they, that they use to better manage their current suppliers for risk and um, for risk and cost, right? And then they can also use the software to source from our network of 500 pre-qualified suppliers already on the platform. So if, you know, a, a buyer is needing to, you know, source a part or whatever mm -hmm. it may be, they can go on the warm commerce platform and you guys have a network of, you know, 500 suppliers That's right. and they can find that and order it through the platform. So the first thing that we do is manage your current supplier. So especially in this environment with coronavirus and everything that's going on in the world, there's a huge increase in interest in what they call supply chain resilience. What's going on with my supply chain? Does my, is my oil field services company that I'm working with, are they getting ready to go out of business, right? Is the equipment provider that I'm counting on, are they getting their material from someplace and that company shut down? So getting second tier supplier risk understood, none of that data is really available in the industry today. So we bring that, that level of visibility of what's going on with your current supply chain for risk and performance, and there's tools to go do that. And then when they want to go source, what we do is we actually connect them and allow them to connect to qualified suppliers so that they can then do business. There is no, we're not a marketplace, meaning we're not conducting the transaction on the platform because most of our customers have spent lots of money on their procurement systems. And frankly, most of what we're selling are things from suppliers that require sales. They're not commodities. So it's equipment and services and all sorts of other things that the suppliers actually want to go sell. They don't want to be commoditized and put on an Amazon type platform. Yeah. I think that's, you know, there, there's people that are trying to do that in industrial products where they're trying to become a full on marketplace and, like if I'm looking for a, you know, a frack valve, it's like, Hey, I need a, you know, 15 K frack valve. It's not something I can just like pick up off the shelf. You know, engineers, whoever's selling the product has to make sure that it's the right product. You know, it's got the right bolt heads, whatever, whatever it needs. So it's not that easy as just listing it and buying it. That's right. And as a, as part of the thing that we learned in my last company is, is that we want to be able to sell on value. And that's how the suppliers in the world, that people that make stuff or provide services, they don't want to be commoditized. Right? Yeah. They want to sell on value and let their salespeople market on their qualifications and their delivery and their service and their quality and I think all of those things. And, and that's not 
that's, I think, that's one of those things where if you were coming from Silicon Valley and saw these pains, you would try to do it with the marketplace. And our view is, is that that's actually probably not how this industry actually works. And to get this industry to adopt new technology, it has to be designed in a way that fits with how they do business, not, hey, come throw out your SAP system and buy everything on my new platform. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think that that's what I was going to say was that I think that's smart because you're playing with with how business is currently conducted rather than saying we're going to come in and completely disrupt and go from one to 10 rather than one to two. I think this is a logical next step to, right. to get to further disrupting the space, but coming in and saying, oh, we don't need distributors anymore. And manufacturers can just do direct to consumer. That's not necessarily how the world works, particularly in oil and gas. Right. Right. And I think the industrial world broadly, right? There's, yeah. again, different tools, but in this particular model, this is really, think about it like if you're a millennial who's in procurement at an oil and gas company, you're used to using Yelp at home to go mm-hmm. and figure out where you're going to go to dinner. And we want to give that same level of tools at work, but that fits into what you're doing. So think about it as we're sort of like a Yelp level of, of interface, but with SAP sort of backend yeah. equivalent functionality. Yeah, you brought up a really good point. I mean, we we've discussed this several times on the podcast, but you have the millennial generation that's, you know, we've had the iPhone since we were, you know, seniors in high school. A lot of us, and you're used to slick user interfaces, yeah. or you can look up reviews, or you know, locations of a place, or whatever it may be, and it just makes perfect sense that you would take. I imagine the supply chain is. Uh, the, the process of procurement is usually a series of long email chains and taking those types of things and it's like, hey, let's build it into a, a spreadsheet. Yeah, and yeah let's build an actual them. platform to where you can go yep. and you can see all the sources. You know, there's 40 different manufacturers that have this part and then you can make your your buying decision and you got it. engage in them. And so. it's, I mean, really what we're doing is on the manager suppliers, we're replacing spreadsheets and SharePoint which is where most of them are trying to do this kind of and, on the, and, so and on the, and on this, on the basically sourcing or replacing Google and lots of emails and phone calls. Back yeah, before. absolutely. It, it is funny that you mentioned one thing you did mention that's interesting is the ratings. Yeah. Right? And that when you think about what we're trying to do to help adopt some of this new technology to the oil and gas market, there's different levels of comfort, right? So using a tool like Yelp, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's been the most interesting part of this journey is the ratings because our platform we believe is the first industrial platform that actually does do supplier ratings. So that's the awesome. reaction to, from the buyers, quote unquote, the supply chain and the category managers is that's awesome. We want that information. They can rate their suppliers either publicly or privately, but they can't actually issue reviews because they're worried about getting sued. And yeah, and yeah, like but they, they can leave a four star or something. They can put, that's exactly what it is. And the <laughs> suppliers are also a little bit, some of them are wary because, hey, I don't want to get a bad rating. <laughs> that's, right? the, that's, that's the point of the, the, but, but the system. The end, that, that's what That's part of this. What we're trying to do is bring transparency to the oil field, which is just like what Yelp has done for restaurants. If you're a restaurant that doesn't have any good ratings or bad ratings, you have a choice between that one and a company that a restaurant that's got a bunch of good ratings from all sorts of people. Where are you going to go eat? I make yeah. all of my decisions based on ratings, like 100%. My wife's a complete opposite. She's just like, why do you read the ratings and reviews for everything? And I'm like, that's the only way you know you're going to get quality shit these days, whether it's food or whether it's I'm buying stuff on Amazon. I will literally go through it. If you have shitty ratings, I'm not even opening it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So bringing that to the, to the industrial market has been really interesting. 
So how do you guys monetize? What's y'all's business model? If yep. you're not taking, you know, you're you're not interested in being a marketplace and actually being involved in the transaction, you're just building the network and a interface to to um, you know utilize the network. So how do you guys actually monetize? We sell software to the companies that use it to buy their. So you're selling it as a, a pretty much as a SaaS type. Exactly. Okay. Yep. yep. So so SaaS enabled network. So first we sell the SaaS to the oil and gas or industrial companies. The way that, that that works, they then require their suppliers to join. So each buyer, quote unquote, will then work with us and we will get their hundreds of suppliers onto the platform. Mm -hmm. The suppliers join for free. We get all their information. We present it to the buyer so they can effectively manage them. The supplier then gets to be able to get accessed by other buyers on the platform. So your, um, your suppliers can get access by Jake's buyers for so you guys don't charge the suppliers at all so to join the platform no but we have all sorts of things we can go upsell them in the future got you right got you right now the goal is really let's get the value proven let's get the platform built out you want to get the network effect kicked off to where you have both sides of the market as well where you have the suppliers and buyers that's exactly and the network effect for people who i don't know if you all talk about this on the podcast that's really where the value gets created in a platform like this it's not 100 percent around the monetization from the marketplace it's that the value of the platform goes up every time a buyer invites more suppliers to the platform that helps other Mm -hmm. buyers and every time suppliers turn around and invite their customers to give them a rating, because that's how they get their ratings, that ends up bringing more buyers to the platform, which helps other suppliers. So the more buyers on the platform helps both sides, the more suppliers on the platform helps both sides, and that data asset makes it very, very valuable for both sides of the platform. Yeah, and then I imagine that there's probably a lot of backend you know, data that you guys can end up you know, using, You know, say that, I don't know, people are looking for a a 10K pressure valve and all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing a lot of traffic for this and that helps some of these suppliers, you know, kind of manage their, their inventory a little bit better. You're just seeing all of this, you know, different types of of data and transactions happening that you can can help these guys. Yeah. the, The goal is the largest companies have SAP and they have something called a Reba, which is their purchasing network i've heard the of Reba mid- before i don't yeah i'm not the, that familiar with them but it's a very complicated system bid market has nothing zero and we want to be able to give very high-end functionality to the the rest of the industry at, a, at an effective price that they can go deploy there's no reason that these mid-size and smaller companies can't be even more innovative than larger companies because they can have the same tools for cheaper and just be faster yeah and, and that the goal is if we can help them cut their costs and optimize their supply chain for working capital and help them with diversity and help them with supplier performance, those are the things that we can do to help this industry get through this downturn and make it through to the backside. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, something like this, the value proposition is even stronger now with COVID just absolutely wrecking supply chains. I mean, Jake ordered one of those massage guns like three months ago and it just now no, got six, delivered six months, oh, six months in ago. January. It just got delivered last week <laughs> and they were like, due to COVID, uh, <laughs> we, all of our factories are shut down. So, so that, that, so that came out a couple of months ago. We have an automotive company that we're working with and they were getting, it's an automotive supplier and they were getting emailed by their customer literally every day. What's going on with your supply chain? How are you doing? How many people are working? How is your employees? What's your COVID-19 thing? 
and then what's going on with your supply chain. So this company to turn around and go to their suppliers and say, what's happening? Give me your daily update, the whole thing. And so we call that operational readiness. That's all built into the platform so that these companies can get visibility into their suppliers and their supplier suppliers. So you really do understand why you're, what is it, mm. a massage wand? Yes, whatever your massage thing is, whatever your massage thing is, why that well, it's actually so I've never worked in (laughs) supply chain or logistics, but it's pretty fascinating to me. So, a guy that I talk about a lot is uh, Scott McClellan, the president of uh, HEB. Colin's Colin's dead, yeah, uh, (laughs) related, related somehow. Anyways, just uh, like I've always been fascinated, whether it was Hurricane Harvey or if it's been COVID. I mean, HEB is always on top of their shit when it comes to supply chain. And, you know, they'd never had any uh, shortage when it came to the pandemic. And he gave a talk about it and was just talking about how in the early stages they went to their suppliers and they start working their way up the chain to make sure that everyone has the capacity to handle it. And it's just it's pretty like, you know, you go to the grocery store and something's on the shelf and you just expect it to be on the shelf. Right. You don't really you're not aware of everything that goes into getting it on the shelf. So yeah, from a, from a bad news perspective, COVID-19 has really caused an increase in the number of people who are aware of supply chain. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty back, back office sort of thing. Yeah. And obviously that tied with the oil, the oil market really means that where's a lot of these, if you're an oil and gas company, you're a manufacturing company, where's a good chunk of your cash going? It's going to your employees, of course, but it's also going to your suppliers. Yeah. And so those two things together are really where we're trying to focus our energies. Interesting. Have you seen any of the suppliers limiting their catalog now due to some of the restrictions in the supply chain? The reason I ask is McDonald's actually is just now moving to a reduced menu permanently. Did you just say McDonald's? <laughs> You fucking country. McDonald's. You don't make you don't McDonald's <laughs> M A C Mac So so they're they're McDonald's is moving to a reduced menu. They're getting rid of parfaits and um salads and all that kind of stuff altogether, saying that nobody bought those things anyways. So we're just gonna stop supplying them. We're only gonna and, and the same with the burgers, they're actually reducing the number of burgers that they're offering. Weird analogy, but are you seeing the same, kind of the same thing in other supply chains? No. No? We're seeing desperate suppliers. Mm. The suppliers in the industry, valve companies, as you mentioned, and completion equipment and all sorts of different things, they are trying to do everything they can to go keep as many of their employees working as possible. Yeah. And if they've got something, there's not, they're not paring back on any of that. They're really trying to do everything they can to go and help get their keep their businesses going. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is these suppliers are facing not only the the macroeconomic environment that we, we've been talking about, but also the way that millennials buy is different now than, than 10 years ago or 15 years ago. 100%. Mm-hmm. Younger people don't want to go to lunch. They want to go and go on the internet and go do research and figure out who they want to go work with and how they're going to manage their suppliers. And, and that's that's hard for a lot of these older time suppliers who are used to doing the lunches and all that sort of stuff. And so, so we're trying to blend that concept as well by giving good information, but still connecting them so that the people can still go to lunch. And yeah, all that. but absolutely. But the suppliers are, are struggling with as the workforces evolve and get younger, how do they still keep their sales going? Yeah. And, and their, their contacts are retiring. Yeah. So where are you guys at in the process of warm commerce? Did you guys, did y'all, did y'all take funding? Did you bootstrap, you know, 
kind of tell us about how y'all actually built the product, the yep. software, and where you're at now. Yep. So um, we're internally funded, and we've got a little bit of angel money. We internal developed. Cool. We've got a senior architect. We've got a team of five. Uh, we've got a number of... On the developer side, did you bring people that you knew from Silicon Valley days, or did you find people... No, I knew a guy. I'm friends with the uh, CEO of a software company called Pros. Okay. And his brother is the chief technology officer who introduced me to this architect. And so awesome. this is a very, very senior. Houston at the senior architect level does not have that many. Mm -hmm. um, this is like senior long-term architects. And this guy is one of sort of a dozen in Houston. So awesome. We're, we're really lucky, flat out lucky to have him. He would yeah. stand up with anybody in Silicon Valley, no problem. That's awesome. Um, so that's developed here. We did use a firm in India to help us for a chunk of a, p a piece of the thing, but yeah, we're good actually on the product. And so, yeah. Very cool. Um, and then, you know, how are, how are things, you know, we talk about the network effect and when you look at any business model that is relying on a network effect, it's always hard to get it off the ground, get it going. But once you get it going and it starts getting traction and steam and momentum, it's hard to stop. Yep. You know, what are you guys seeing in terms of adoption? You know, our companies looking like, Oh yeah, fuck this makes perfect <laughs> sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I get it. Sure. And I'm not even in supply chain and logistics or are they still kind of, you know, hesitant to adopt? Uh, I think it sort of goes in phases, which is last year we got, to customers and we got those customers going 500 suppliers we had been planning to close more coronavirus definitely impacted that in q1 yeah but we've since launched some more functionality and launched a actually services group to help distressed oil and gas companies that don't have a lot of resources mm -hmm. basically reduce their working capital to protect their cash and so we're working with now like accounting firms and turnaround advisory firms and private equity firms yep. to help their portfolio companies get a second set of eyes and some technology behind reducing their costs and working capital. Yeah. And that's created a whole bunch more opportunities for us. Yeah. And so yeah. So we're 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 doing everything we can to build up both sides of the business and, and execute. So obviously, you know, you guys are focused on oil and gas right now, but this concept or technology could be applied to many different industries is that the plan are you planning on taking over oil and gas and then starting to wedge into other verticals yeah so actually we 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 would call ourselves focus on the the industrial market which would be oil and gas and industrial manufacturers and construction companies and things like that in the oil and gas market the thing that's nice is uh, is that they share a similar set of suppliers so you can start building up a commonality and get to that network effect mm -hmm. if we had a one buyer who was a um, oil and gas company another buyer that was in the food industry they can both use our SaaS tools they just can't share the supplier base and so the network effect doesn't go yeah so the goal is focus on the industrial market heavy oil and gas power gen manufacturing construction who have similar suppliers and then we can leverage the thing from you there. start working outwards exactly. from there. very cool so if anyone wants to find warm commerce do you have a website can they go find you on online yep so there's sort of three ways that we would engage with people right so first if you're a supplier if that means if you make stuff or you sell stuff to oil and gas companies or other industrial companies go to our website www.warmcommerce.com and register for a free account that's easy is there an application process if you're a supplier to get listed on on the platform? They have to go register. We help them get their profile going, and then they're live, and they can go market themselves cool. to the buyers on the platform. If you're a, if you work at a company, 
that could potentially use warm commerce to help reduce costs or manage your suppliers better, you can go on warm commerce and register for that. And we'll get you up. We'll get in touch and figure out what's the right way to do that. And then, um, if you are interested in helping friendly suppliers by giving them a rating, then come to warm commerce, sign up for a free license. We'll get you taken care of. And then you can go and invite your friendly suppliers, give them a rating and help them try to go get more business. So that's, that's very cool. That we want to help people help each other in this marketplace. And especially with a lot of salespeople at home, nobody's going in the office these days. Yeah. This is the sort of thing that you can do to help get your own company going, get on there and get your own profile and help your friendly sales, uh, you know, friends yeah help their companies as well awesome yeah if you guys are listening and you're interested in warm commerce go check them out um, get signed up for an account and then charles is going to be coming back in the next few weeks and we're going to be doing a uh, demo on the bullpen so you guys can actually watch a video and and see it in action uh charles man appreciate you coming on i, th I think that we're gonna have to like have a separate podcast sometimes like war stories with with charles from the dot De com yeah decade in silicon valley <laughs> during the dot com that's bust. why i have gray hair sprinkled everywhere yeah. right? <laughs> so. hey man i appreciate you coming on the show thank you for having me I appreciate it guys yep all right guys if you enjoyed the show please uh, forward it on to your friends check us out on youtube subscribe to the newsletter you know the drill we'll catch you guys in the next episode come, 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 come.